0: Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 4, where we will talk about stretching post-exercise, the best-kept triathlon cross-training secret and lactate testing. But before getting into those questions, let us thank our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. I was listening to the very good Trainer Road podcast from Kona where they did several episodes where they interviewed age groupers they were about to race in the Ironman World Championships. And one thing that stood out was that all of these age groupers were really dialed in with their nutrition and hydration. And several of them, uh, when talking about hydration, mentioned that precision hydration is where, first of all, where they learned about their sweat rate and their sweat sodium content, but also that that was the actual product that they used. And you can do the same thing either. You can go to a precision hydration sweat test center and get really exact and accurate about your sweat testing. Or you can just take their free online sweat test on PrecisionHydration.com that I linked to in the episode description. You'll answer a few quick questions, very qualitative questions that you don't need to measure or test anything for, and you'll get a very good ballpark estimate for how much you sweat and, and lose in terms of sodium in your sweat. And if you want to try their product, you can get your first box for free with the promo code DAT, triathlon SHOW, all one word, all CAPS. And thank you to Stack that uh, is the company behind the world's quietest indoor bike trainers. They do this because they don't have a flywheel to provide resistance. They use magnets instead to provide a resistance to the wheel. And one other benefit of not having a flywheel is that it's quite bulky. So the Stack Zero, it actually folds very flat. And when stuffed, it is only three inches tall. So it can even fit into a a checked baggage or even a large backpack. So it's quite portable. And another thing to mention is that uh, in a recent article that I saw on bicycling.com, Uh, the stack zero halcyon their new smart trainer version it was one of only two bike trainers from this year to make the the list for the newest and coolest gear in the fall of 2018 so you can check that out on bicycling.com and you can check out all the stack zero trainers on StackZero.com and use the promo code tts20 to get 20% off any of their trainer models All right, so let's get into today's questions. The first one is from Pablo Antonio Garcia in Chile. So that's great to get a South American question coming in. Uh, Pablo writes, hi, Michael, your Q&A podcasts are very informative. Here are a few questions you may find interesting. One, what is your take on stretching post-workouts? It seems to be absent from your podcasts. How would they differ between types of workouts? So let's start with that question first. There was a review article uh, that was published in 2017 in the journal uh, Research in Sports Medicine. And the article was called impact of stretching on the performance and injury risk of long distance runners it was an australian review by baxter and colleagues i'll link to it in the episode description and i think to my knowledge it's the latest review article on the topic of stretching in terms of uh, performance and injury risk and of course this is just runners but uh, to a big extent you can extrapolate to triathletes although not necessarily completely But uh, their conclusion is actually very good, so I'll just read the conclusion from that study. And it reads In conclusion, the literature suggests that stretching poses no significant advantage to endurance runners. Acute stretching can reduce running economy and performance for up to an hour by diminishing the muscular tenderness, stiffness, and elastic energy potential. Chronic stretching So uh, let me cut in here. Chronic stretching is what you would do, for example, by stretching post-exercise. Chronic stretching additionally appears to have no advantageous effects. In regards to delayed onset muscle soreness, it has been reported consistently in the literature that stretching cannot reduce its longevity or intensity. In relation to injury risk, stretching shows little significance for endurance runners to chronic injury. Endurance athletes are at high risk of overuse injuries such as uh, iliotibial band syndrome, stress fractures and plantar fasciitis and literature literature suggests that stretching cannot reduce the prevalence of these injuries. It appears stretching may hold significance for certain exercise disciplines however, however it can be concluded that it holds no advantage for endurance runners and is not the solution to improving performance or reducing injury prevalence so so that's the take and and i think by and large this holds true for uh, for triathletes as well uh, but uh, what this paper and this review doesn't really go into is uh, the impact that chronic stretching so stretching whenever really not necessarily post exercise can have on improved flexibility range of motion and what impact that can have on performance So that is uh, the other side of the coin. So uh, to be clear here, this review paper clearly states that based on the literature, uh, stretching, especially in runners, does not prevent injury risks and it does not improve performance directly. But uh, there is uh, some, I don't know if there is literature evidence behind this necessarily. And so I'm not saying that this this is just what my current take on it is. My take on stretching post-exercise or any time really is that if you have a mobility issue or a flexibility issue, a range of motion issue that prevents you from, from getting your uh, potential out on the run primarily, or maybe on the swim as well, where you need a lot of mobility and flexibility, then stretching can play a big role in improving that range of motion and flexibility, and uh, you should consider doing it. And I do this, I try to stretch my hip flexors and my hamstrings. I'm not as diligent as I should be. But when I do do this stretching routine, it is static stretching. It is I hold it for at least a minute and a half for each, each side. And I tend to do this post-exercise, especially post-low-intensity exercise. So that answers your question. Because I think that uh, although I don't know if there exists strong evidence... my intuitive belief is that it makes no sense to stretch after a really hard workout where you have actually caused muscle damage but it does make sense to stretch to do this sort of stretching that is meant to improve your flexibility when your muscles are warm but not damaged so after low intensity exercise so after your normal easy endurance runs for example that, that would be my take on it. But to do this, to be clear, uh, from what we know, it seems that to improve flexibility and range of motion, you need to hold your stretches for... minutes or more and uh, i'm sad to say that you probably need to do this sort of stretching almost every day which i'm nowhere near doing at the moment so uh, yeah i don't know how much benefit i actually get for it but that's my current take on it i do think that stretching can be beneficial for that purpose but not from a direct performance or injury prevention or recovery uh standpoint we know that from literature that stretching post-exercise especially in in running but i also think definitely applies to cycling it doesn't really help and that's uh, the conclusion that i just read uh basically goes to goes to show that Uh, but uh, a couple of more listening uh, additional um, related listening is my episodes 116 Which was an interview with Jonathan Beverly called Running Form and the Search for Common Ground Among Top Coaches, Researchers, Physicians, and Physical Therapists. So that's where we go into this concept of static stretching to improve range of motion a little bit. We talk about that, what I just mentioned. And uh, we also cover that a little bit, I believe, in my interview with David Baim, which is uh, episode 141 Foam Rolling, Benefits, Protocol, and Scientific Evidence. So I'll link to those two episodes in the episode description so the second question from pablo is uh, the off season is coming in the north so one question i emailed a while ago could be useful do you think alpine touring or ski randonnée, so not nordic skiing can play a role in off-season training i'm a 48 year old agekeeper in chile and have participated in one and two sprints over the last year and we'll do an olympic this december keep it up pablo all right, so uh, Alpine touring, Ski randonnee that's uh, that's such a brilliant sport. I uh, Actually, I, I haven't really done much of it. I have only done it once, I think, I would say. Uh, if that, it doesn't, probably actually what I did wasn't really quite uh, Alpine touring or ski touring, but something quite close to it. Uh, so mountaineering and then skiing, skiing down a glacier sort of thing. Anyway, I love skiing, uh, both... Uh, in the and off piste and also uh, Nordic skiing or cross country skiing, and I do love things like trail running. So I know that uh, when I when my triathlon career, career is over, I will get more into adventurous sports. And ski touring is something that I want to do a lot. My sister does it quite a bit, and she's really into it. She also loves nature and that sort of thing. So, so I'm I'm waiting for it, and uh, I I'm eagerly waiting for the time when I will start doing that. But anyway, so I. I'm somebody who have, has dabbled a bit in ultra running, and I've also coached a few ultra runners. So, especially a couple of years ago, I was following the uh, the elite ultra running scene and trail running scene really, really closely. And one thing that kept standing out to me is that so many of the world's best ultra runners, the very best in the world, they use ski touring and uh, ski randonnets and sometimes exclusively for months and months and months during winter as their only training. They don't run. And then they run for a week or two. They show up to the first really big spring race, which is usually Transvolcania in uh, the Canary Islands, and they completely crush it. And one the best example, perhaps, is Kylian Jornet, who many may be familiar with. He's the guy who uh, crazy, crazy talent, but also crazy, crazy training regime. He ran up Mount Everest. He he's just the trail running god, the mountain running god although he doesn't consider himself a trail runner he's uh, he's really a mountaineer and uh, mountain adventurer uh, but he's one example and Emily Forsberg who's uh, or was at least perhaps the, the top female uh, trail and ultra runner was uh, another example of doing only uh, this kind of, of ski touring in uh, and ski mountaineering in, in the off season in the winter and then they run for a week or two and then they win and crash all the races when the running season shows up and so so that's one example of how it's it's running it's not triathlon it's not exactly the same but you can keep your aerobic fitness so so well like you can keep everything of your aerobic fitness with that sort of thing and even some of the muscular fitness apparently because you wouldn't be able to win those races if you lost all your muscular endurance so for running at least ski touring and ski randonnets seems to be super beneficial as uh, as cross training i think that uh, probably you can actually in- improve your aerobic fitness because you it's an entire body workout you work your arms your upper body a lot as well so you can potentially even see some improvements in things like vo2 max if you if you do also some intense ski touring and you keep all your base fitness and then get you lose a little bit of the running and si- definitely the cycling muscular endurance if you do exclusively ski touring of course but uh, this is the extreme example of those ultra runners if you do you skip you do less running and less cycling than you usually do in winter and supplement with ski touring then you i think you get the best of both worlds you get some cross cross training you get a a bit of a of a break from as much running and cycling as you used to which can help prevent injuries and mental burnout but you can still keep your your fitness your uh, at at the same level both the aerobic part of course but also the muscular endurance part since you do some running and some cycling still but then you you do more of that uh, that ski touring in the winter so so i think that yes you can absolutely do ski touring i think that Daniela daniel is in triathlon somebody who does a lot of cross-country skiing which is also uh, equally a great great cross training supplement that i give to some of my athletes in those sorts of climates you may be familiar that uh, cross-country skiers tend to be the, the athletic population that have among the highest VO2 max numbers measured in the world. Hélène Journet, again, is another one. He's in the 90s, close to 95 almost, I think. So so to sum up, uh, yes, uh, ski touring is fantastic cross-training and I wouldn't hesitate to say that you can absolutely do less of your running and cycling in the off-season and uh, supplement with with ski touring or ski randonnets or even cross-country skiing as well uh, so and i'd go as far as saying that it can be potentially better to replace some of your triathlon training with this type of cross training for a while that's how effective it can be but because it will give you that rest from the constant stress of cycling and running the monotony of always doing that but you will be able to keep that fitness and if you do some of it to keep the muscular endurance going And then you do the the ski touring to keep your aerobic fitness and uh, even potentially improve that. So uh, that's that's Pablo's question. Thank you so much for your question, Pablo. All right, the final question is uh, by Tom Browder. He asks, is it worth doing a lactate test in addition to field tests? So, that's a great question. And uh, first of all, I want to direct all of you to an in depth episode on the topic, which is episode 79, which is an interview with Alan Cousins, and it's called To Lab Test or Not to Lab Test. So, a few thoughts here. Uh, it uh, can definitely be worthwhile. And uh, in case you're not aware, it's even possible to buy a lactate test kit and uh, do it yourself you, and uh, maybe test with a friend. So, you can do it yourself and you can do it in the field, which uh, Can potentially be particularly useful. And uh, the reason that I think it can be very useful is uh, to set more specific heart rate zones than you would get from field tests. Those heart rate zones are very much uh, approximations and uh, population averages. So I I wouldn't place too much stock in the heart rate zones that you would get from a field test, to be honest. So a lactate test is much better in that sense. And in my opinion, the most important benefit of that is that you can be more specific about not going too hard in your easy workouts. So, for example, uh, let's say let's talk about the bike and you assume you have a power meter. Let's say you you do your easy rides in the Andy Coggan bike power zone two. Uh, so you may actually, if you are at the higher end of zone two, you may be going above your individual aerobic threshold, even though the idea is to be at or below the aerobic threshold so you're not you're actually going too hard for a low intensity workout even if you practice discipline control and stick to your zone to your power zone two. but you never know because there is individual variance so you may be above your aerobic threshold and the lactate test can help you uh, can help you test that and uh, of course your power at the aerobic threshold will change as the season progresses but your heart rate will be more fixed so uh, so that's uh, one of the most useful benefits of the lactate test. There is a problem with lactate tests if you do it if you go to a lab and do it and that is that uh, that if you primarily rely on pace or power zones which I think many athletes should do especially in their hard workouts I don't think that you should rely on heart rate if you can avoid it I think you should go more on pace and power. But then in a lab, you, you have to run on a treadmill and you have to ride on a bike, uh, the lab stationary bike quite often. So with a different power meter and your own power meter. So the results that you would get in terms of pace zones and uh, power zones can actually be incorrect quite, quite, or quite inaccurate I, I would say compared to what your outside running paces or bike power might be based on your field test and I would go as far as saying that in some cases I've coached athletes where they go and take a lab test and they come back to me with the zones and they do some workouts in those zones and we can see from their data both their heart rate and their power etc their RPE that it's just totally off they, they can't use those zones that they get from the lab so, so so it's like you read and there are many reasons for this well those things about being on a different bike a different power meter is one reason running on a treadmill is different than running outside so that's why i think a field lactate test can be better the same actually if you can do a field bike uh test like on a hill for example and uh yeah getting that portable lactate testing kit can be useful so, so there are definitely some problems. Another problem is that uh, many labs try to make the ramp durations in their ramp test quite short to be able to squeeze in more athletes, uh, which I understand because it's not an easy business economically to be in. But uh, then it can really skew the accuracy of the tests if they go to three-minute ramps instead of five-minute ramps. So again going back to that interview with Alan Cousins he definitely recommends that you have to have five minute ramps in that lab test otherwise it probably won't be as accurate as it should be and I agree with that I've seen lab test results where the the ramps are three minutes and it just makes no sense based on what I know about the athlete. So uh, so there there are things, you can get very useful data from the lactate tests, but there are things to consider there uh, and there are some problems with it. And uh, so, but le- hypothetically, uh, let's say that you do a lab test and you don't even use that information at all in training. I still think it can be valuable information and worth it, provided you, that you then repeat the same test and uh, doing the same, controlling all the same variables. So doing it in the same lab, the same protocol, the same equipment so let's say you do one test at the start of your uh, your training season again, when you start your build towards your, your summer key race, for example. And then you do it again as you get quite close to the race, maybe three or four weeks out. Then And then this gives you maybe a three-month period, and you can see how you have responded to training. And that will give you tremendous insight, insights into how well your training has been working, and this will then help you. It will be so valuable when you plan your next training block. So even if you don't use any training zones or anything like that from a lactate test, I do think that there is tremendous value in that, provided that you repeat the test and, and can compare the two tests. Another thing to keep in mind is you ask about lactate testing. But I want to add to this that if you are to get into a lab to do testing, it might be worth it to combine that lactate test with an actual VO2 max test, where there is a metabolic cart involved. You have a, a, a respiratory mask that analyzes your your respiration uh, gas concentration, and uh, then that way you can you can determine your VO2 max, your ventilatory thresholds, and also your carb and fat burning at various intensities. And this is very useful, all of this is useful, but especially if you're training for longer races, those, that metabolic information about how much carb and fat you're burning, that is, uh, is massively beneficial, both for planning your race day nutrition, for planning your training, and also for plan- planning your everyday, your day-to-day nutrition. So, so that's worth keeping in mind. That maybe if you go and do a test in a lab, especially if it's a one-off test or something that you don't want to do super frequently, because it is uh, definitely an investment. Then I would maybe do like invest in actually getting both the lactate and the metabolic data, because they can get those in the same test. So to you your question is is it worth getting a lactate test and uh, i will answer that it depends it depends a lot on your goals and your ability Uh, i do think that uh, there is a good a good compromise between spending a lot of money and getting frequent test results would be to do one to two tests per year uh, preferably two and that would be a lactate and a metabolic test, as prescribed above. So one would be quite early in your season when you start your base training, and the other would be probably towards once you have gone through uh, a big, big chunk of training. And you, let's say you start your training, get back into base training, if you want to call it that, in in January, and you have a key race in at the end of August. Then maybe you go in and test at the beginning of August or end of July or something like that. That gives you a, a solid six seven months of training and you can see how you have responded to the training you've done and that information is invaluable really Uh, however like of course you have to weigh the benefits of this against the costs and also is it preventing you from making other investments of course i'm a bit biased as a coach myself but i 100% wouldn't do uh, lab testing if it means that that's something that you do instead of getting a coach because i don't think that it's anywhere near as beneficial Uh, so so it's data and uh, it can be useful but it really depends on how you apply and use the data how actionable it is and you really need to be quite knowledgeable to make the best use of that data the lab will probably give you some information but i've read many test reports from labs with athletes that i've coached that have gone and taken those tests and that training advice from what i've seen can be pretty much rubbish and generic and it won't help you uh, achieve your goals and especially if you are an age grouper on a limited time budget i don't see that that uh, that, that that advice that I, from what i've seen at least in the from the labs that my athletes have been going to that, that can really help you that much the data can definitely help you but you are the one or in case you are, if you're a coached athlete your coach is the one to help you make the best use of that data but if you don't have a coach you need to be able to do that and and that's quite difficult so so that's why i wouldn't uh, do the tests as a replacement for a coach definitely not Uh, plus there are tools for example i as a coach use wko4 uh, which is a great tool and also shout out to exert which uh, does similar things here These sorts of tools can help estimate some of the things that you can learn from this lab testing. And they do a pretty great job at... uh at these estimates, actually. And there's also some very interesting recent developments in this space that I am monitoring very closely. So watch this space. News may follow quite soon, but uh, I'm not quite ready to announce that yet. But but anyway, the advantage of investing in a coach, especially if it's a coach that is knowledgeable in these sorts of tools and uses these sorts of tools, is that uh, you can get this sort of information without necessarily having to go to a lab I'm not saying that it's a complete replacement for a lab test to get the WKO4 data, for example, but it can definitely offset not going to a lab. You can get some a large part of the benefits from that data. And one benefit of this, both WKO4, Exert, potentially some other tools out there, is that it's not just a snapshot of uh, one particular day which a lab test is which inherently makes it susceptible to to errors. Uh, but these tools they aggregate all your training data in their models and uh, and that's that's just it, it just reduces that potential error a little bit. Of course there are other errors instead in terms of that of their it's modeling it's not measuring so that's a, di- a difference. Uh, so compared to direct measurements in the lab but uh, but then again like again if if you are to to choose between lab testing and investing in in coaching then these are the things that just it's it's important to be aware of that there are ways to to get by and get quite a lot of information that you could get from a lab using these sorts of tools but some additional disadvantages of tools like wko4 and exert that you also also should be aware of is that they work with power. So you need to have power data. And they work very well with bike power. And in theory, they should work with run power as well. Uh, and they might work very well with bike power. But personally, I use them mostly with or only really with, with bike power. So I'm not in a place where I can say, uh, give any comment on how accurate the run power side of their models are. From For all I know, they could be very good but i'm not sure like for example theoretically i think that wko4 uses the exact same model for bike power and run power and i think that exert probably does it too uh, so although i'm not sure uh, steven if you're listening to this you may correct me and you may uh, you may send me any updates that you've been doing uh steven from exert is who i'm talking about for those listeners not aware but but anyway so so it works best with cycling i think at least for me as a coach that's what I know that these tools work with and that's where I feel confident that I can I can tell an athlete that based on this model your threshold is roughly at x watts so we know that but I wouldn't feel quite as confident doing that sort of uh, recommendation for running yet just because I don't have that experience of using these tools with, with run power yet and not run pace. I know that Xert, they uh, are working on heart rate. I don't remember exactly in what capacity, but I think that's another limitation of the tools is that they don't give you those heart rate zones that I mentioned at the beginning of this question, that getting to know where your aerobic threshold heart rate is, for example, is really, really useful. I think that Xert is definitely working on on adding these sorts of things to their models, which would be absolutely brilliant. Uh, if that was added, so so it's it's developing definitely, uh, but uh, these are some things to consider. So to sum up, is it worth getting a lactate test? It depends a lot on your goals. If you want to push your boundaries and get the most out of yourself, then yes, it's worth it. Uh, but uh, do make sure that you get as good data as possible. So that means getting those five minute duration ramps and not three minutes, for example. And uh, try to get to do the test in a lab that allows you to use your own and power meter if possible. Uh, and uh, I would also say do it at least once per year, but uh, ideally twice at least. And it's worth doing the whole shebang with VO2 max and metabolic testing, not just lactate testing. Uh, that's my take on it. One more piece of related listening is actually coming up in episode I want to say 154, I believe it will be. So in two and a half weeks time or so, I interview Adil Twaiten, who is the Norwegian national team triathlon coach. They are very scientific in their approach to training, use a lot of data, and their athletes do lab testing six times per year, which is a lot more than most elite level triathletes, actually. So they find great use for it. And if you have been following the ITU circuit, you see the results that the regions have been getting, and it seems to be paying off. In addition to those six lab tests per year, they do a lot, a lot of lactate testing in the field. I don't remember, but I, I think Odell said that they do like 2,000 lactate tests in the field per year, something crazy like that. Uh, so, so that goes to show that, yes, there, there is value to this, but you need to be able to use it right. The Norwegians have done a great job of using it right. If you have a coach, then uh, doing these sorts of tests will be the the coach will be so grateful for you because you give them the tools to better coach you. I would I am very grateful to all my athletes that do these sorts of tests, and because it does give me additional insights. But uh, yeah, it's it's an investment and you need to weigh the pros against the cons and make sure that you get the most out of the investment that you make with some of these uh, considerations that I've given you. All right, so that was a long uh, answer to to this short question, I think. But uh, I do hope that you found this useful. And uh, the first question as well from Pablo. Thank you to Pablo and Tom for your questions. If you have questions for an upcoming Q&A, send them to me on michael at michael.scientifictriathlon.com. And before we go, big thank you to Stack for sponsoring this episode. You can find them on stackzero.com. That's all spelled out and you can find it in the episode description. You can get your bike trainer, which is a revolutionary, uh, super quiet or silent bike trainer. And you can get 20% off with the promo code TTS20 on stackzero.com. And thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on PrecisionHydration.com. Click the link in the episode description to take your free online sweat test and get an individual hydration strategy for your training and racing. And get your first box of Precision Hydration product for free with the code THATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.